We dedicate this episode to Phyllis Henneman, the first victim of Joseph James D'Angelo, who passed away last weekend from a long battle with cancer. Due to her illness, Phyllis was unable to attend D'Angelo's sentencing hearing, but was able to have her victim impact statement read by her sister, Karen. The statement concluded with words that will forever resonate with victims and survivors everywhere. I am not what happened to me. I am what I choose to become. Seeing D'Angelo be sentenced provided her with the closure she needed before leaving this earth for a more peaceful place. Phyllis was an integral member of the Facebook group for survivors of sexual assault set up by fellow survivor Chris Pedretti. She is survived by her loving family who will miss her dearly. We honor her and dedicate this episode to her and her strength. She will forever live on in her words. Thank you for your strength, Phyllis. This is for you. Some of the topics discussed on Blackbird, an advocacy podcast, may be difficult to hear. Listener discretion is advised. At just 15 years old, Chris Pedretti was sexually assaulted inside her home by a serial rapist known as the East Area Rapist. It wouldn't be until years later that she found out that the same man who assaulted her was also a serial murderer known as the Golden State Killer. Here in her own words, her story of survival and why she gave a victim impact statement at Joseph James D'Angelo's sentencing hearing after he was apprehended by police. Hello. How are you? I am well, how are you? I'm good. If you could um, walk us through what the assault was. Um, Again, you don't have to go into too much detail. It's totally up to you how far into detail you want to go. But if you could kind of just talk about how you felt at the time that it was happening, uh, you know, what was going on through your mind and, and a little bit of, you know, right after it happened. So uh, the assault, when it happened, I was uh, just turned 15 years old. And I was really just that kid, you know, that didn't ever think anything bad happened to anybody. And I felt very safe in my home. So my parents had gone to a Christmas party and my sister was working. And I just, I wasn't scared at all, you know, because my sister would be home. And like I said, nothing bad ever happens on our block. And, um, so I began to play the piano just to pass some time away. And, uh, I heard a noise and I thought, what was that? But as a 15 year old, I always heard noises and we always ignored them. It was just like no big deal. And it was probably only seconds later that there was uh, a man with a knife around my neck, you know, at my throat telling me that if I were to, move that he would kill me and at that moment i i experienced you know a feeling that i don't think i've ever quite experienced again thank god (laughs) and that was i felt completely frozen and almost robotic you know my i think my body went into survival mode instantly and I do believe that is a lot of what got me through that night. And so I was kind of outside my own body. I did what I was told to do. Um, my main goal was to survive. And, you know, luckily for me, I, I'll be honest, I didn't know enough about rape or the evil in our world to be 
understanding what was about to happen. And I, I think that that was good for me also. It's more survival for me. Um, I just kind of went through it. And so he raped me three different times. I was outside in the cold and then he disappeared. And right after, um, I guess on how I was feeling, I, I really was feeling about, you know, getting help. And I didn't, you know, I was tied up and I figured out how to get up and hop over to the phone because back in those days, long, long ago, there was no 911 and you had to call the operator. And I did not call the operator. I called my, my best friend and she and her family ran over and they took it from there. But um, yeah, that's, that's kind of what happened. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, obviously this is something that you're not used to, uh, something that you're not, you have no programming for, for what to do in this case. I mean, like you said, even just from the very beginning, when somebody has a knife to your throat, your brain just has no idea what to do with that information. So it makes perfect sense. Uh, yeah, exactly. And then, yeah, when it was, when it was over, you don't think, oh, oh, what's the best course of action to do now? Do I, you know, let's call the police or let's walk to the police station. All you're thinking is I need help. And these are the people in my life that I know help me. So it's a natural response to just go for, you know, young people will, will contact their mom or their dad or, or in your case, a good friend. So that makes perfect sense. Yeah. And, you know, it is amazing how your body does take over because I do remember before calling them, I was able to get to the front door to make sure it was unlocked so that somebody could come in. And I think about that now in my head, like, how did I know to do that? Yeah, <laughs> that was, yeah, that was just an automatic response. You know, you weren't even really thinking at that point, you were just doing. That is exactly right. It's, you know, we talk about a lot on the podcast, the, the different uh, ways that we react during a traumatic experience. And, and you mentioned that you kind of just froze and, and you complied with what he was asking of you or, or demanding of you, I should say. Yes. Was there ever a time that you believed this could end in your death? Absolutely. Yes. Um, three different times actually. And, uh, I believed him when he said he was going to kill me. Right. And so there was at one point where he, you know, was pushing me through the backyard and I fell and my blindfold fell off and I was terrified that that was going to be it. So I kept my eyes shut really tight and kind of, I don't know, motioned to him or whatever that, that it was off. And he asked if I'd seen him. And I, I said, no. And he reminded me he would kill me. There was another time that for whatever reason, I thought he had a gun and I don't think he did, but I felt, I felt like I was just waiting, like it was going to happen any second. He was just getting ready. And then the third time I felt um, he had moved the couch what he had done is he'd actually put the fireplace on, turned it on. It was a gas fireplace. And I knew, you know, how my living room was and the couch was against the door. And so the couch was really hot. And I thought that he had caught the couch on fire and that he was going to, I was going to be left to burn in the, in the home. Wow. And you know what, there was just, I, I just think it happens that there's a point where I resigned myself to, I'm going to die. And I remember seeing Jesus loves me. I was very religious at that time in my head. And I still hadn't died those three times I was still living. And finally, I kind of tested him to see where he was. And if I moved, he was right on me telling me not to move. And I did this a few times. And I think like maybe the fourth time there was, it was silent. And at, at that moment I was like, you know what, if death is coming my way, here it comes, but I am getting up. And if he's somewhere in the house, there's no way I can get back. And it was just a risk I was taking. And I think there's just a point probably for everybody that you hit a point where you just can't do it anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
Now you mentioned that you called um, a friend who uh, who lives nearby, correct? Yeah, across the street. Right. Um, what was their response when they came? Um, you know, obviously you're you're 15 years old. You're alone. You're you're terrified. Something horrible and traumatic has just happened to you, and you need a support system. What was what was that like? to have something so traumatic happen and then have some, you know, a few people that you felt comfortable with come, come to your aid? Um, well, that, they did come to my aid, but I don't remember any comforting. You know, they, I, here I am, they were probably in shock themselves, right? I'm completely naked except for a shirt around my waist and I'm tied and I, I remember them getting me, you know, untied, like cutting the ropes and freeing my feet because I was hopping and um, maybe they did comfort me, but I don't remember, you know, that's kind of where my memory ends on that. Yeah. Sorry, you're, but... you're so traumatized at that point that your brain just isn't functioning fully. So <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I was in survival mode still. Yeah. Oh, right. totally. And that'll, I mean, I'm sure that you can say better than anybody else, but that lasts a while. <laughs> it's not like, oh, it's over now. So everything's cool. I can go back to normal. Right. That is true. And I think, you know, for some, and probably for me to some extent, uh, that survival mode stays until you're able to work through it, you know, with help. And there are people, you know, still in survival modes that, don't want to be in big crowds or they don't want to be alone or, you know, they're, they're still living with looking over their shoulders and being hypervigilant. Yeah. There's permanent trauma there for many people. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I assume um, they probably called the police for you at that point or, or the, the operator at that point. That is my assumption because they showed up. So. <laughs> <laughs> it was not me. <laughs> So what was dealing with the police like? Do you, do you feel like they, for, for what you can remember, again, obviously you were, you were still kind of going through the trauma, the immediate trauma. Um, do you feel like the police dealt with it in, in an empathetic way? Or, I mean, you know, this is the 70s and it's not like they had, you know, um, trauma-informed classes like they do now um so how, how do you feel that was it was dealt by by the police i'm gonna i don't think they were not compassionate but again i don't remember i just remember being interviewed and being asked questions that a 15 year old knows nothing about and um and it was a male was not a female and at the time uh carol daly who was a detective with the East Area Rapist, uh, she was on the case, but for whatever reason, she wasn't on my case. You know, it was a week before Christmas, so she possibly was out of town or whatnot. Um, I believe that if a woman who was compassionate was there, it would have been a lot easier, but this was a straight interview. And then off to the med center for a rape kit where a woman officer actually did meet me there, but I don't think she ever spoke to us. She, that was just her job to be there. Okay. Do you remember any, you know, you were blindfolded, so obviously you didn't really see much, but do you remember your other senses kind of going into overdrive? Um, did you smell anything or, or hear anything that, that seemed peculiar to you? No, I don't remember you know what, for most of that night, I really don't remember a whole lot. I, I know that it was really cold outside and I can tell you, I did not ever feel cold. So I just think all of my energy was, yeah. was going to survive. And I'm sure that if there was somebody that was maybe in their twenties or, you know, maybe a little older, they would have known to be listening. And I, I didn't, I just, everything was just survive. Yeah. Yeah. And again, that makes sense. I mean, at that point, yeah, your, your brain is not working normally. It's just, it's just trying to make sense of what's happening. This is such an unusual circumstance. Exactly. You have no programming for this. Right. Exactly. 
at the time, did you know of the East Area Rapist? I did not. Uh, I had no idea that we had that. And, and I, I understand now there were other serial rapists out there as well. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea. When did you find out that your rapist was the East Area Rapist? I think I found out somewhat soon because I do remember knowing that name. So um, my guess is it was in the newspaper or on the news because I don't, my parents never talked to me about it. So I learned about it somewhere else, but I, it might've just been on TV. I don't remember how I. And how, how was your family in this situation with you? Oh, well, so uh, my family <laughs> very much is, you know, well, we were actually ordered, my sister and I, to never speak about it, ever. And we took that so seriously that me and my sister didn't even talk about it until 2018. And, you know, she's 60 and I'm 59. So that was a lot of years of silence. Yeah, it was, it was just something we didn't do, we'd be in trouble, you know? And when you're young, you just listen to your parents and they don't do it, so you don't. But even the night that it happened, I, I remember telling the police to, I did not want my parents in there. Absolutely not. They had to stay in the living room while I was in the family room. And when I had the rape kit, I did it myself, didn't want anyone there. It just, you know, that inherent shame that comes on you instantly. I didn't even realize what shame was, but you know, it was just a no talk. Do not talk, do not discuss, do not act like there's anything wrong. You just move forward. And for the longest time, I thought it was only me that couldn't talk about it. But as I met other victims um, and still meet other victims of that era, you know, that's a very common Thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's that's the most important thing to talk about because if you don't talk about it, then you will get that idea like you had that it it shouldn't be talked about and it can't be talked about. You, but you you got to talk about anything, you, something as serious as this, or something as simple as you know, I I forgot to pick this thing up at the grocery store, or oh, I forgot to get gas on the way home from work. Like it's really important to talk about this stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that you know, what I've learned anyways, through my own experience is you can't just tuck it away. It will come out one way or the other. It'll through behaviors, through unhealthy coping mechanisms. There's nothing good that's going to come from keeping it to yourself. Absolutely. Exactly. When was it that you then found out that he had escalated to become a serial murderer and your rapist, the East area rapist was actually also the golden state killer. How, how long, I mean, this must've been a while after that it came out that he was the same person. Yes. Uh, I don't, I think I remember hearing something about it. I was so disconnected. I mean, I really lived in this, bubble of denial and I do remember hearing it but I don't think I realized he was a murderer I know I you know those those years are just years I can't get back and I I I really lived with kind of a film over me that um, either I heard it and forgot about it or I did I don't know (laughs) I just, I, I know he was in Southern California and that's all I remember because I do remember thinking, oh good, he's not here. With that, you know, being that you, that you were sort of living in, in, a, in, a, in a bubble of your own, um, how did you find ways to try to cope with the incident? Oh, geez, I did drugs. Um, I kept constantly busy. I, I was working by 15 and a half and never stopped. Um, I had unhealthy relationships. Nothing good. You know, I, I did keep my grades up and I was a good worker. I mean, I excelled at everything that I did, but um, it was 
it was just a life of being numb or busy for right. years, decades, decades. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's the unfortunate thing about that time period, that period in American history, you know, that, that kind of path was taken by a lot of people, whether they were subject to what you were subject to or, or not. You know, a lot of people just kind of got forgotten. Exactly. Exactly. And like I had said earlier, you know, I mean, you can run, but you can't hide. You can, you can try every trick in the book, but it, it, if it's not released, it's going to stay with you. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why it is so important, like I was saying before, to, to talk about that stuff. And that's why it's such a shame that you weren't allowed to. Yeah. At one time, I was very angry at my parents for that. And now, as I learn more about the 70s, you know, I've kind of shifted over that it was probably more protection. Um, I just wish they would have spoken to me about it and helped me to understand right. your fault. Um, you did the best you could do, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, even if you were just able to talk to your sister about it, that would have been a tremendous weight off your shoulders. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Did you eventually speak to anybody else about it besides your sister? I mean, obviously it was only a few years ago that you were, that you were able to finally have this conversation with your sister, but had you gone to therapy at all? Was there anybody else that you found to be a support that you could talk to about it? No, there was no therapy. Um, actually, it's it's a crazy story of how um, I did end up talking to my sister because that was only maybe four weeks before he was caught. And so what happened is a newspaper article came out and there was a gal in there who was telling her story, who was a victim of the hysteria rapist. And I read things online. My husband's at the newspaper. So I came home and he said, hey, Chris, there's something that I think that you might want to see. Um, you know, it's in the paper. And I don't know what I was doing. I said, yeah, you know what? I'll look at it later. Thanks. But, you know, not now. And they kind of brought it up again. I mean, I'm like, what is so important that you want me to see this? So he had actually thrown it away in the recycle bin because he knew this would be hard for me to see. And so he went and got it out of the trash and brought it back. And I looked at it and I was uh, in shock. Like here, this woman is showing her face and she's talking about this and you're not supposed to do that. You know, in my brain, like that is, what are you, what are you doing? And so I read it and I was, I just, I can, this one I can still remember. I was incredibly surprised that this would even be in a newspaper. And so I called the editor, I'm sorry, I emailed the editor and asked to give my name and number to her. And he did, and she called me and we spoke and, you know, a little bit. And she said, you know, she's older than I am. And she said, you know, there's another gal that I know and her name is Margaret that was raped by him and she's more your age. You might want to talk with her. So Margaret and I connected and then Margaret said, hey, was Carol Daly at your rape she was like oh my gosh a godsend and i was just a kid because margaret was only uh 14 i think or 13. and i said no i i didn't meet her and she goes do you want to meet her because i'd heard her name i was like yeah i'd love to and so she reached out to carol and then carol came to my home and i knew she was coming so i asked my sister at that point hey you know what mom and dad aren't even alive anymore we don't have to keep silent you know, big epiphany and yeah. Carol Daly, you know, I'm in my fifties. Okay. Right. So, this, um, so she comes over and she actually brought me a copy of my police report and stayed with us for a while. And she was so kind and we are friends to this day and she left and I read that report to my sister and my husband at the table so that Nobody wanted to ask, you know, and so I said, let's just read it. And so that was the first time they had heard all the details and, and it was a big reminder 
for me of all the details. And, um, and then a month later, it might've been three weeks, he, he was caught. And I honestly don't know what I would have done uh, if I didn't already have that experience with Carol, because I thought he was dead and, and now he's caught, but at least, you know, I had looked at the report. I had been able to talk to my husband and my sister. And so it's not that I was ready for him to be caught, but I don't even know what would have happened if that was just out of the blue, you know, without ever talking to anybody about it at all. Right. What strength you, you had to be able to open your police report and, and re and remember everything that happened. Yeah. That happened to you at that time. That's just, that's absolutely incredible, especially after so long of keeping it inside and not being able to talk to anybody about it and, and to have that, like you said, the epiphany of, Hey, we can do this now and, and just kind of rip that bandaid off that that's just, that's absolutely incredible. I, I just, I want you to know that I think that you are so incredibly strong for having been able to do that. Thank you. Thank you. You know what? I just think it was time and all those years, those scripts of my parents telling us to not talk about it just kept playing. And it just kind of like the record needle scratched, you know, stop, you don't have to do this. And, um, I just, I just think it hit me at that moment. And that was probably one of the hardest, but the best days of any of this was being liberated enough to talk. Yeah. Yeah. That was probably one of the most healing moments in the entire ordeal. Certainly the beginning of them. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. You said, uh, you know, a few weeks later was when he was actually caught and, and a name came out you know, this is, this is Joseph James D'Angelo. This is the man who, who, who did this to you. What, what was going through your mind when you heard that he was finally caught and you saw his face and, you know, did, did it, did it, did you flash back to that day or were you just relieved? What, what was going through your head? I would say relieved is absolutely not the right word. Okay. <laughs> um, so I was out of town, actually. I was in a hotel room by myself on a training. And at six o'clock in the morning, I started getting calls. Carol Daly was one that called me. And then there was another sheriff that called me. And my daughter called me. And first, my daughter called me, actually. She said, I think he's ca- he's been caught. Actually, I'm, I'm trying to think back. She didn't call me. It was a text. And I remember looking at it and thinking, Oh my God, this is so early in the morning. I'll read this later. And then I, I remember putting it down on my phone and then, you know, popping up eyes wide open, like, wait, what? And that, then Carol called and then another sheriff called. And I was actually right, I will say back where I was when I was 15, the, the day it happened. I shut down. I couldn't think the world around me was completely non-existent and my husband called and he's asked if I was okay. And I was shaking my head and I was like, Chris, I can't hear you. We're on the phone. Do I need to fly to come get you? And I, I don't know. It was like this demon had been raised from the dead because I had convinced myself he was dead and I remember thinking in my head, like a ridiculous argument with myself of, should I just go back to bed? Should I take a shower and then go to bed? Should I go to bed for a while and then take a shower and then go to training? I, I couldn't, I just, the whole world was spinning around me. And um, I finally made my way down to the training and told my boss. And I was just, my whole body was shaking. I'm telling you, it was just like, that night and um she was able to help me get on a plane and i did not want to know who it was what if i what if i knew him i didn't you know i needed to get home and you know was he a teacher was he my dad's friend what you know how how, am i going to know him and uh, so i got home 
I was in the middle seat, last seat, four guys next to me because I'm crying the whole way. <laughs> and, um, and then, you know, I heard the, the, I got home before the, um, press conference thing mm-hmm. and I did not know him and I did not recognize that name. And he was just this ugly old man. And I, I don't know, like it, it just, he, he's just an ugly, disgusting old man. Yeah. Was that uh, kind of a, 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 I don't want to say a good thing, but did you prefer that it be that, that he's this ugly, or that he looks like the monster that he is? Yeah, you know, he actually looked like a pathetic monster. He didn't look like the strong guy that's going to hurt anybody, right. you know. I didn't, like now I can see the evil in him, but there he was just super pudgy and, you know, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. He wasn't very threatening to look at. So he is more threatening to look at now. What made you decide to um, give a victim impact statement? Um, you know, since you, you weren't expecting this to all happen and, and it was it almost like it was re-traumatizing for you. What, pushed you to want to go to the sentencing hearing and, and actually speak to him face to face? Well, you know, this was my only chance to talk to him because I had been told to shut up, right? For the entire night. I don't know if it's 25, 30, 50 times. I mean, that was a favorite line of his. And this time he had to shut up and listen to me. And that took, gave me a little power back, I think. And also I had already started the group of the, you know, it's time to tell your story. And there were so many women supporting me on that site and giving me encouragement. And I thought to myself, you know, I, I don't want to say I was lucky. So I was fortunate because the majority, I'm going to say 99.5%, right. Of women don't, have the community support and the support of victim advocates and the therapy that was provided and these beautiful women that are, you know, hoping I can speak the message that needs to be spoken. And, um, and then his other victims, D'Angelo's other victims that we had all become close and, and we routinely got together I don't know. I just, there was so much support and love. Even the judge was supportive. Like the whole thing was amazing. And I felt like I needed to talk to him and I wanted to talk to others who may be watching that, that had a similar experience, whether it was stranger date, you know, incest, whatever it was, you know, the delivery is different, but the result is the same. And I just, I felt like it was my honor to talk. And in my impact statement, the first part was to him, but the last part was not to him. It was to all those women that have suffered and are finding their way. Amazing. Absolutely. Absolutely amazing. Like you said, the, the power that you, that you kind of took back and that's exactly what these, these crimes are. They're crimes of, of taking the power away from the victim. So to have the opportunity to get that power back and, and get that control, that little bit of control over him in that situation and be able to tell him, no, this is my time. And then to share that with so many other of his victims and then also other victims of, of anybody else saying, you know, here I am today standing up here and, and you can do this too. It's incredibly empowering for others and, and especially for yourself. And, you know, you, you mentioned before the, the, the beginning of your healing journey was probably when you were able to talk with your sister and open that police report and, and, read what had happened do you feel like having you know spoken to him and and read this victim impact statement was also part of that healing journey for you absolutely 100 percent to to 
walk away from an opportunity to, to take my power back um, where I never had any before was so important. And I feel that if I had not done that, I, I would have given, he still would have had it. I was too traumatized to even speak to him as he's handcuffed to, you know, his chair, wherever he was. You know, I, I couldn't do that. Like he didn't get that. He did not get that. <laughs> not from me. You, you mentioned the, um, the Facebook group that you started. Um, can, you, can you talk a little bit about why you started it and, and what it is and, and give some information to the listeners if they, if they want to look for it um, for themselves? Absolutely. So I started that uh, last March and I had gone through therapy, a lot of it, and it was really, really hard work. And um, they have some amazing tools that help victims. You know, back in the 70s, it would have been talk therapy, therapy but now they have EMDR, brain spotting. There, there's so many tools that can help um, go through that journey other than just talking about it, you know. And I had, I had come a long ways and I thought, you know, I just I feel like there's something I want to do. And couldn't really figure out what it was, but I've always, always felt like no one, I don't want anyone to feel the pain I felt of being alone. It just, I don't, I mean, it, it's an unfair sentence to put on someone that's been raped when it wasn't their fault and they're holding themselves in prison, you know, within their own body. So I thought, well, okay, it's COVID. So maybe what I can do is, uh, reach out on Facebook. And I was so scared because I thought no one's going to want to come. <laughs> How is anyone going to even find me? And they did. And one by one, they came and shared. And um, there would be women on there saying, you know, it's been 50 years and I've never shared this with anyone and I, and I feel safe. And there would be women saying, I haven't told my story. I don't know if I'm going to tell my story. And we would be like, that's okay. You know, it's your story. You own it. And when you're ready, you'll tell it. And, you know, sure enough, three months later, five months later, they're saying, I'm ready. And I don't know. It just, it's healing. And it's not just healing for them. It's healing for me every single day. I read these stories and I'm encouraged and I'm empowered and they're encouraged by reading others. They're empowered. And, you know, the gift just keeps on going. And so what is the Facebook uh, group called so people can find it if they, if they want to? It's called Sexual Assault Survivors. It's time to tell your story. And it is a private group. Um, but what that means is not that people can't join, but what that means is that nobody else can see it. And so when you want to join, it's, it's going to be, you know, you click, I'd like to join. And then there's going to be a couple questions. And then there are rules and we follow them. I have kicked off my share of people. If I feel that it's disrespectful or that they're not in it for the right reason, because there are some, you know, real weirdos out there, um, we'll delete them. Um, anyone that's offended by anything, they let me know. And um, I've done everything in my power and everybody else is kind of a watchdog as well to keep this place sacred. And it's working. And I think right now we have about 440 people that have joined. Wow. Yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna ask actually about how difficult it is to kind of keep things kosher in there. Because like you said, there are weirdos, there are so many weirdos on the internet, oh, yeah. that no matter what you're doing, someone will either have a problem with what you're doing or they'll intentionally come in to try to whatever, you know, I mean, we have people who comment on our, on our podcast. It's an advocacy podcast. How could you possibly have a problem with it? Oh, yeah. But people somehow have a problem with it, yeah. you know? Yeah, there, there are some strange people. And we even, um, I've started doing uh, some Zoom meetings on the group, trying to expand it a little bit. And the last one, one of our own members, uh, Lori, she did a whole thing on internet safety and how to spot a fake account et cetera, et cetera. It was really, really good. So we're also educating each other to be our own watchdogs. And, and it's really hard 
the, the rules are so set. Like you can't talk about anything other than support. So when someone goes on there and says, Hey there, what's happening? Delete right away. <laughs> you, know, you are gone. And <laughs> you guys probably get that kind of stuff. It's really, you know, so in anyone, you know, and I'm glad I'm saying this out loud, anyone that is, wanting to join, I am looking at your profile before I accept you. And if it looks like this account is a fake account, you're not coming in. And, you know, we, we just, we owe it to each other. These women who are deciding that this is the time to be vulnerable. Uh, I owe it to them and they owe it to each other to be aware and watching uh, what's happening around them and making sure that we're safe. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, that's that's the place that you need to be as absolutely safe as possible. Yes. I mean, this is the place where you are the most psychologically vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And the last thing I want is to cause further damage. Like, no, this is not a place for that. Right. It is an incredible group. Um, I joined it um, maybe a month ago and it just, to, to read the support that's in there is absolutely, absolutely incredible. Um, I, I have joined other um, groups as well for, you know, things like domestic violence and, and think other things that we discuss on the podcast. And I just, I feel so much safety and, and empathy and compassion from your group. And it just, it really embodies what, what support in the community and, and advocacy should be all about. So I commend you for creating it and for keeping it um, such a safe space for, for people, especially on the internet, because it, you know, like Dan said, that is the most vulnerable, vulnerable place you're going to be. But I don't feel any of that in that group. I, I always feel like whoever is posting a comment or, or, you know, re, uh, replying to a post, it's always about support. Um, and, and that's, that's a testament to what you've created. Um, so I, I can say for many, many people, thank you for that. Thank you for saying that, you know, this uh, rape is so widespread right like it's everywhere and it's behind closed doors and they're in crevices and and i don't know i i started counting the other day i think i'm up to 20 different types of of rape that they've classified you know date rape stranger rape you know blah 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 and uh so i checked the other day and i looked and i was really amazed that we have um not just in the united states but we have 11 other countries of women that have joined and not a lot right but they're there and it just it's more testament people are searching for support. Yes. yes. Uh, amazing. Yeah, yeah. there is there is such a need because it is such a widespread thing. It is. Uh, you know, it, it's something that's unfortunately been a part of the human of human society forever. Ever. As long as there have been humans, humans have been doing things like this to one another, yes. stealing from one another, hurting one another. You, you know, so. It, it, it does happen. And it's unfortunate that it, there is such a stigma against acknowledging it, that, you know, what happened to you where you were denied that outlet, that has been a thing amongst uh, human society for so long. You can't talk about these things that happened to you because either you did something wrong or, or it's, it's bad juju or whatever. And there's such a stigma against talking about these things. And we're only just now in the last, I would say, five years, maybe 10 years, getting to a point where people are allowed to talk about these things. Yeah. Still don't. Yeah, right, right. The Me Too movement definitely catapulted that significantly, but there's mm-hmm. still so much stigma around it. And, and we still see, even with the Me Too movement, people, you know, making jokes about it and and, oh and of course, yeah. trolling the, the internet about it. And it yep. just, we still have such a long way to go. Yeah. And, and the people that, that, you know, t- that play devil's advocate against these things are like, oh, well, this can't be real because 
there can't be this much happening all of a sudden. It's like, no, 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 this much has been happening for thousands of years. It's just that now people are being allowed to talk to about talk it. About it. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's the younger generation that is feeling more, but I, I still think that there is, I still think there's that stigma. I don't think we've come as far as oh, we yeah. think we've come. And, Absolutely. you know, the bottom line to that, that whole, you know, you can't talk and the more we don't talk about it, the more rape will happen because the rapist feels pretty darn secure that you're not going to say anything as he moves on to his next victim. And I had a a neighbor that said, um, yeah, you know, Chris is talking about this because she just wants attention. And at one time I would have been mortified like oh my god like oh you know it's he's back at the the victim shaming right victim shaming and now i'm like you're damn straight i want attention listen up rape is real it's out there i'm sorry you were not comfortable with it but i will talk about it i will shout about it and so will my fellow uh other survivors because we can and we will and statements like that that you know every woman has heard and you guys i'm sure have heard too the jokes though she just wants attention or whatever she probably did something to bring it on those are all ways to hold women down and to allow the rapist to keep raping and we just can't allow that you know it's not going to stop without our voices exactly yeah, absolutely exactly do you, do you have any specific advice for someone who has been through a sexual assault? Yes, of course I do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know what? The biggest advice I have is talk, you know, talk about it, find a group, find a friend that you trust, uh, call a rape crisis line, you know, as long as we don't talk about it, it's easy to fall into the trap that I must have done something that caused this rape. And rape is not your fault ever. It doesn't matter what the circumstance, what you wore, what it was like, whatever someone wants to come up with, it's wrong. It's not your fault. It is not your shame. It is the rapist shame. And we have to give it back to him. And like I said, rapists will keep raping because our society protects them through victim shaming. And, you know, you will get through this. You're not alone. You know, I guess that's, that's my biggest advice. That's your first step. Because once you know you're not alone, you can start to heal. Is there anything else you want to share? Um, whether it be anything else about the group or, or any other information about, um, your healing? Um, I feel that my healing, you know, is going to be a, a process, right? You know, it's, it's not, it's not just a one and done. Okay. I'm fixed now. You know, it's something that I'll be carrying with me, um, but in smaller doses and, and in more productive ways than I have done for the last four decades. And the group, I would, anyone that wants to join, you don't have to talk. You know, sometimes people say, I can't share this. You don't have to. You're not going to be called out. If you want to just hop on and listen and read, that's okay. Because you can get strength that way also. If you're a man, hop on. Men are, are sexually assaulted every day, just like women are. And um, so it's just a place that you can be safe, whether you want to participate, whether you want to hang back and read and gather strength. We have articles on there uh, talking about rape or PTSD, things that are associated. We have the videos. We have each other's stories. Um, you know, feel free. And I, I look forward to um, meeting you through through the site. Thank you so much for, for coming on and sharing your story and for being a voice for so many people who, who maybe don't have a voice or, or don't know how to raise their voice. Thank you for creating this group. It just, you are an absolutely amazing, incredible person. And I hope you know how strong you are. Thank you. That's so sweet. Thank you very much. You don't need to be told this because you've been dealing with this for so long, but yeah, I mean, it's, you are such a strong person 
for getting through this just just to be able to give yourself a life and and have a husband and have a doggy and, and and take care of your house is is a win and 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 a win and a win and i like i said you don't need to be told that you know this but i i feel like it's important to tell you that anyways thank you i really appreciate it you're welcome thank you so much for coming on you are welcome we very much appreciate your time and I appreciate you allowing me on your, on your podcast. Of course, important, of course. Important stuff. Yes, it is. Yeah. I mean, it's important to talk about this stuff. You know, I always kind of make the joke when we, when we're doing our, when we're recording our podcasts that like, we don't, we don't do this for money. We do this, you know, so we, we could say and do whatever we want. We don't, we don't have sponsors to make happy because we don't do this for money. We do this to make, to make people feel better. And we do this to get to raise awareness to raise and, awareness yeah. and to get people talking yeah because you know the common theme throughout this interview has been talk about it talk about it talk exactly. about it so the more people that we can get talking about it the better great i cannot agree with you more <laughs> thank you so much have, have a good, good night. night you too bye bye everyone i am nick and i'm russ and if you're looking for a podcast about current events that's well informed highly educated and safe to share with your whole family that's not us nope it's not but here at the nick and russ don't know anything podcast we have an opinion about everything and don't mind sharing it that we do new episodes every wednesday and saturday check us out at nickandrust.com and find us on apple spotify iHeartRadio, and many more including youtube thank you and i love you all Mwah! We are Pod Jerky, two Canadian buddies serving up multi-flavored audio jerky in every episode. If you like good times, strong coffee, maple syrup, swamp donkeys, hockey, the outdoors, common sense, dogs, conspiracy theories, sports, and life in general, then subscribe and follow our podcast and check out our social media channel at Pod Jerky. Pod Jerky, make it a double.